I would invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. That would be 495 if you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided. A little hard to find. It is one of those minor prophets that we have been working our way through. It's only, in my copy of the scriptures, it's only three pages long. So if you blink, you'll miss it. It's like one of those rural Texas towns, right? If, you keep, if you're driving too fast, you'll go right past it. But, like those quaint little rural Texas towns, sometimes there's some really neat stuff to see. And so, um, this morning we're going to just take a quick overview of the book of Zephaniah and, by God's help, learn some lessons from it for ourselves as we are nearing the end, only a few more to go in our series on the Minor Prophets. Zephaniah, we'll read together verse 1, and then we'll ask for God's help. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Geladiah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Lord, help us in these moments that we have together. May we understand your word. May we apply it by the help of your spirit. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, there are handouts um, for Zephaniah. Andrew is making his way around and uh, handing those out to you. Perhaps this will help you to take some notes and to see where we are in the scheme of things. Christians, and frankly even non-Christians, have this little phrase that we like to use in American culture. The phrase is, all sin is equal. The funny thing about that phrase is, I nearly never hear it used as a phrase that points out one, the serious of one's own sin, right? I mean, almost never when someone says all sin is equal, do they mean my sin is just as profoundly terrible as the sin that I despise in others. That's, that's like almost never what people mean when they say that. More generally, what people mean is, well, my sin isn't worse than anyone else's. It's generally used by people to belittle our own sin than to magnify the seriousness of it. In Zephaniah's day, God's people had been lulled into complacency to assume that their sin was no big deal. They looked at the surrounding nations that were worthy of God's judgment, and make no mistake, the surrounding nations were indeed worthy of God's judgment. But what Judah failed to realize is that they were guilty of some of the very same evils. And so God sent Zephaniah the prophet to prophesy against Judah, to announce that God's own people were facing judgment. 
So a little bit about Zephaniah. He actually traces his lineage in verse 1 of chapter 1, and he traces his lineage all the way back to his great-great-grandfather, Hezekiah. Now, who was this Hezekiah? Well, it is very likely that he is referring to the godly king Hezekiah of Judah, who reigned 715 to 786 B.C. If that is in fact the case, that that is the Hezekiah he is speaking of, Zephaniah is the only prophet that we know of that has royal blood. So Zephaniah might very well have been a relative of the king, Josiah, who was ruling at the time of his prophecy. He actually gives us the date, the approximate date of his writing, because he ties his prophecy to King Josiah, the king of Judah, who ruled 640 to 609 B.C. A couple interesting things about Josiah. He ascended to the throne at age 8 and began, even though he had an ungodly father and grandfather, he began to make reforms in Judah back towards the worship of Yahweh. Now, by the time Josiah took the throne, Judah had, had for, for generations been headed in the wrong direction. And so Zephaniah is still reflecting, even though they were in a brief period um, that, would, that, would, that would promise some hope, Judah was pretty long gone by this point. And Josiah's reforms, good though they were, uh, were not to last long, and they were in a context, a broader historical context of Judah continuing to pursue paganism. And so he was probably actually early in Josiah's rule when some of these reforms were taking place, very possibly even before, you might remember the story, the, the, the law of God was discovered and read, and Josiah the king re repented on behalf of his people and began to even ramp up the reforms that he previously had had taken had initiated and so Josiah was was a young man who was determined to follow after Yahweh to, to worship the one true God as his great grandfather Hezekiah had before him so in 628 BC he tore down the altars to Baal and burned the bones of the false prophet uh, in 622, a priest who was making repairs to the temple discovered the lost book of the law. He brought it to Josiah, and after reading the law, jo Josiah launched even a more concerted national effort to purify. And it was during this time, it was early in this time, that Zephaniah preached a message to the nation. You see, the king was making reforms. He was, the leadership was headed in the, in the right direction, but the people were still clinging to their idolatry. And we'll see this in, in, their, uh, in pursuing chapters. Clearly, God's people were trying to serve two masters. They were... They were one foot in idolatry and one foot in Yahwehism had not fully decided to follow after God. And so Zephaniah decries the, the, the synchristic religious practices, the, the blending of two 
divergent religions to make a new one that suited their own needs. He decried the pagan practices that they continued to pursue. And he announced, you remember this theme from other prophets, the day of the Lord. And so one of the themes that is throughout this book is that theme, the day of the Lord. Now we've touched on this theme before because it comes up in several of the prophets. But let me just kind of remind you, the day of the Lord refers to a period of time when God unusually clearly, powerfully, specifically works in the affairs of men to fulfill His promise. Usually the day of the Lord has components of both wrath, judgment, and restoration. God's mercy, His loving kindness. Right? You remember that when we, when we introduced the concept of the day of the Lord... We mentioned that the Hebrew day was thought of in terms of nighttime, what we would call nighttime, and then sunrise, right? So in our, in our mind, sunrise starts the new day, like first thing in the morning. Remember we talked about this? When we say first thing in the morning, we're talking, you know what, you know, 5, 6 o'clock, maybe for some of you 9.30, Right? But basically, that's the beginning of the day. We think of sunrise as the beginning of the day. We know technically it begins at midnight, but, but really in our Western culture, we think of the, the, the sunrise as the beginning of the day. The Hebrews thought of it opposite. They thought of sunset as the beginning of the day. So the Hebrew day began with darkness. Likewise, the day of the Lord begins very dark. The day of the Lord usually, at, at, the, at the beginning of the explanation of the day of the Lord, comes judgment, condemnation, God's conquering of the rebel. That is the day of the Lord. And then it gives way to the sunrise. And so here with the prophet Zephaniah, the day of the Lord begins with the darkness of judgment. And then in the third chapter, yields to dawning hope. Chapter 1 all the way through the beginning of chapter 3 are the darkness of the day of the Lord. And in in chapter 3, verse 9, then we turn our attention to the hope of the future. So let's let's look at the prophet closely. In chapter 1 and just into chapter 2 through through chapter 2, verse 3, the prophet considers the sin of Judah. And through what he teaches us here, we learn that we must look with an attitude of repentance to our own sin. Our first step is to look within. And as we look within, we must approach that look with an attitude of repentance of our sin. So in chapter 1, Zephaniah is very clear that God's judgment is coming. Look at the beginning of it, chapter 1, verse 2. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land. God's people had been deceiving themselves into complacency, but God was not complacent. He was not apathetic about their sin. And so Zephaniah describes this judgment in verses 2 and 3 as a, a universal judgment. I will consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. Literally, literally the phrasing there is, I will make an end to everything. 
I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of heaven, the fish of the sea, the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, says the Lord. Now, you'll also notice, and this is, this is something that, that, that we really see Zephaniah emphasizing, is that this judgment isn't just for those people. is isn't just for, for the others. It isn't just for the, the pagan nations. No, no actually, in, in verse 4, it says that he will stretch out his hand against whom? Against Judah, right? And Jerusalem. These are God's own people that Zephaniah is pronouncing judgment against. And in verse 7, he says that this judgment is at hand. It indicates that the judgment is fast approaching. The time for grace is gone. Judgment is coming. Now, I want you to look at verse 8. You'll notice some things that may puzzle you. It shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. Now, he's not simply saying they dress like people from another country. What he's talking about is the, the pagan ritual practice dress. He's referring to the fact that Israel had, had literally put on the clothing of the pagans. They wanted to mimic. In verse 9, he says, In that same day I will punish all those who leap over the thresholds. You say, what in the world is that all about? Well, understand that in the pagan, many of the pagan temples of that day, they would actually carve images of their deities at the threshold of the door so that you had to pass over the deity. Well, it seems sacrilegious to step on your God, doesn't it? So the pagans would jump over the thresholds of their door. Again, this is a, this is a pagan ritual. It is a pagan custom. And the prophet Zephaniah, delivering the message on behalf of God, says, You are enthralled with pagan practices. And he's indicting them and announcing that judgment will come. They had adopted the religious superstitions of the pagans, and God was taking that very seriously. Now, the thing that is interesting, that is maybe even surprising, to Zephaniah's audience is that, that, that he is announcing judgment. It is directed at Judah. The ancient prophet has a as a truth here that is still valuable, that is still applicable even to complacent people today. So just like Old Testament Israel, many, many believers of today have become convinced that, that God doesn't care. He's, he's not interested. He's not really going to act against them and have become content to live with the status quo to live their life the way they want to. Modern Americans think of religion as a smorgasbord, right? I'll, I'll take a little of this because I like it, and I'll take a little bit of this because I like it, and I'll take a little of this because I like it, and I'll, I'll put it together however I want to in a way that suits me. This is exactly what Judah was doing. They wanted a, they wanted a little worship of God, of the true God. Sure, I'll, I'll have some of that. 
Oh, worship of the pagans, pagan gods, I'll, I'll have some of that too. Oh, some tradition of being true to the covenant of Yahweh, oh, we like that. We like the blessings that are associated with that. Oh, oh the, the religious practices of the pagans, uh, of idol worship, oh, we like some of that too. And so they had grown apathetic, thinking that a thin veneer of worship of the true God was sufficient. To such people, Zephaniah makes some very bold statements. He says, the day of wrath is coming to you. Beyond that, he encourages them to seek the Lord before this great and terrible day of wrath. You see, even those who claim the name of God, those who claim a religious form, are not impervious to God's judgment. Religion. Even if that religion is in the name of the one true God, religion amongst people who are rejecting Him while claiming His name will be judged. Judah was shameless about this. They were not ashamed of their adherence to false gods. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation." Now, you may be using an English Standard Version which translates that word um, very well as, O shameless nation. They They were shameless in their loyalty to the cults of the nations around them. The application is that the even, even the religious, those who have a form of religion, must turn to God in truth. Humble ourselves. Dedicate our hearts to Him. A, a form of godliness is not sufficient. We must follow after God. We must be obedient to Him. We must purge out the sin of paganism, of the, the, the false beliefs, the, the, the loyalty to the things of the world that Judah was guilty of. And I wonder in what ways this morning. Can you think of areas of your life where I, I, I kind of treat that as a, as a pet, a, a thing that I love? I don't really want to give that up. I mean, I know it's not right, but it's okay. It's, it's no big deal. I mean... All sin is equal. That's what Judah was doing. Judah was saying, well, it's okay for us to have some paganism mixed in there too. God announces through his prophet that he will have people who are loyal to his covenant. Not people who merely make a mockery of his name by having a temple, by having a worship center that has his name on it. But he wants his people not to be apathetic, not to be complacent about the sin, but to approach it with a humble heart. And so that's the lesson for us as well. Now, how do we excuse it? How do we excuse this mixing of truth and error in our own hearts? Well, we excuse it because we think, well, they're worse than I am, right? Those other people... That, that their sin is much worse, and we, we grow complacent. We convince ourselves that it's okay because we're not as bad as. <clears throat> well, for believers, it is true that we will never lose our salvation. 
But the lesson that the prophet reminds us of is that God does not tolerate sin, even amongst his own people. We have a temptation to look at others with judgment and ourselves with leniency, don't we? Right, yeah, uh, well, those, those people. Oh, but me, well, you know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not perfect, but that's the way we tend to. And I wonder this morning, how are you tempted to do that? What sin in others do you highlight so that you don't have to think about the, own, the sin that you are guilty of? How do I do that? How do I pass judgment on others around me so that I can kind of pat myself on the back and say, well, I, at least I don't do that. Whenever we find ourselves thinking that way, we better, we better repent. We better think very carefully about the reality that God does not tolerate sin even in his own people. And when we recognize in ourselves, when we recognize our, our tendency to be, to be easy on ourselves and hard on other people, what should be our reaction? When God brings to our attention our sin, well, chapter 2, verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld His justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. That is a very poetic way of saying what we might summarize with the word repentance. We humble ourselves. We're reminded of the seriousness of our own sin, and we fall on the mercy of God. And it is for those that in the day of the Lord's anger, we're sheltered. You see, Christianity, following after Jesus, is not something that we merely enter into through repentance. Christianity is a lifestyle of repentance. It is a posture of continual repentance. You see, you see, uh, children of God, those who have trusted Christ, are not just people who have repented of their sin. They are people who are repenting of their sin. And I don't mean by that that you have to get saved over and over and over again. What I'm saying by that is that we ought to live in the reality of what saved us in the first place. The recognition that we are sinners, that we are deserving of God's wrath. And, and where is the escape from that? The escape is not, oh, I'm better than those that are around me. The, the escape is not, I, I'm not as bad as. The escape is in repentance and humbling ourselves before God, in throwing ourselves on His mercy again and again and again. We must be in a posture of continual repentance. I wonder... How often do you recognize sin in your own heart and seek God's face? Turn to Him in repentance. Is this a part of your daily walk? Is this part of your, of your quiet time? Is this part of your habit in fellowship with God? We must look within. That is the starting point. And we must do so with an attitude of repentance. Of our sin. So we must look within first. But there is the truth that we can observe and learn from what God does with others who rebel against Him. 
who refused to repent. And so in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, all the way down through the beginning of chapter 3, verse 8, the prophet considers now the sentence against the nations. And from this, we learn that we must look around with an awareness of God's justice for sin. Chapter 2, verse 4 through 15, Zephaniah selects four nations. One from each point of the compass. And he describes in detail the judgment that God is going to bring for them. So watch it with me. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Philistia from the west. Verses 8 through 11. Moab or, or Ammon to the east. Verse 12, Ethiopia to the south. Verses 13 through 15, Assyria to the north. So Zephaniah goes around the compass and and, and articulates these, these nations as emblematic of those that surround Judah. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Zephaniah focuses attention on what God would do to those in Jerusalem who refused to repent and seek the Lord. They would fall under the same devastating judgment that God would send to the surrounding nations that were previously listed. In chapter 3, verse 1, Zephaniah uses three participles listing the condition of Jerusalem as the reason for condemnation. We see them as adjectives in our translation. She is, verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1, she is rebellious. You see that? That is that that blatant disregard for God's covenant stipulations. She is secondly polluted. She is defiled, in other words. She has chosen to divide her love and loyalty between God and idols. This is exactly the illustration that Hosea used. Brother Fisher preached from Hosea last week with this analogy. She's polluted. And then lastly, in chapter 3, verse 1, she is oppressing. This is demonstrated in the mistreatment of the poor. Others in the covenant community were being disregarded, were being treated. Those helpless in her midst were not being cared for. And so there's kind of a summary indictment in chapter 3, verse 2. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Judah had been warned, and they continued to stiffen their neck. And so God, through his prophet Zephaniah, is is pointing out that God's judgment upon the world will come, and that his own people, Judah, were not impervious to that. God's specific intention was to demonstrate His wrath through judging the nations, and it was supposed to produce repentance. Right? Chapter 3, verse 6, I've cut off the nations, their fortresses are devastated, I've made their streets desolate, with none passing by, their cities are destroyed, there's no one, no inhabitant, and I say, surely you will fear me, you will receive instruction. Right? God says, I judge the nations around you. I've destroyed some of them. Surely you will look to that and you will take a lesson from it. 
so that your dwelling will not be cut off, despite, ever, despite everything for which I have punished her. But, what do they do? Verse 7, but they rose early. Eagerly is the idea. They, they, they eagerly went about corrupt deeds. God says through his prophet, I gave you warning, Judah. In fact, I even illustrated my wrath to the nations around you. And what do you do? You continue to pursue corrupt deeds. And so now God addresses his people. He judged the other nations in order to teach them his ways, to bring about repentance. But instead of repenting, they continue to rise up against God. Now, he says here, he will gather them together for judgment. So, just kind of a, um, a, a note, the gathering that is in view here is in part fulfilled in 586 B.C. with the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. But it is not fully fulfilled in 586 B.C. There is something more and that is that final battle will all, where all the nations will be gathered. God is doing the gathering in Jerusalem. They've gathered there with the intent to destroy Jerusalem, and they will be judged. God brings them all in one place to judge them. So there is a very real sense in which the prophet is even, even foretelling that which will happen future to us. One day God will judge the nations. They will rise up to defeat Israel, and in that moment God will intervene. And so the other nations will be judged, and then Judah will be restored to rightful place. And this is the beautiful part of Zephaniah's prophecy. Right? This is the, this is the dawn that we begin to see in chapter 3, starting in verse 9. And so in chapter 3, 9 through 20, the prophet considers the salvation of the remnant. And from this we learn that we must look ahead with an assurance of coming salvation from sin. You see, this isn't the end of the story. Zephaniah is clear. God's judgment is coming, and in 586 B.C. it surely comes. Jerusalem is destroyed. The Babylonians overtake and God's people are taken into captivity. But that's not the whole story. God's wrath will fall, and it does, because God's people refuse to repent. In fact, the shadow of that judgment still hangs over the nation of Israel to this very day. Right? They've not been restored. Yes, there is a nation in the Middle East called Israel, but it is but a sliver of what God will do in the future. And so notice Zephaniah 3, notice verse 9. Then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him with one accord. Beyond the, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds. Remember, remember the contrast in chapter 2? You, you're shameless. And now he's saying, because you're restored, there's no need to be ashamed. 
You will no longer be haughty in my mountains. Remember, he, he called on them to repent, and they would not repent. They would not humble themselves, and so he has to judge them. But in that day, they will be humbled. Verse 12, I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. In that day, God is going to purify. He's going to preserve a people to himself. And so complete, so thorough will be their cleansing that this nation will not, not be undesirable. They will not be shameless as in Zephaniah's day. Their shame will be removed. Their sin will be forgiven. They will be restored with their God. This nation that had refused to obey the Lord will now submit themselves. They will, they will be rid of their pride, their arrogance. They will be meek and they will be humble. We're told. And so there will be a great transformation. God will once again restore his people. You see, he will not utterly destroy them. God still has a plan for his people, Israel. And he will restore them one day. And that is a day to which we look. But as we think about what is happening here with the, the forward looking aspect of this prophecy, we're reminded about something far greater, and that is the character of God. God had promised that He would make a great nation, one that would last forever, a, a, a throne that would be eternal. He would make of Abraham a seed that would last forever, and God still intends to keep His promises. In spite of the rebellion of his people, in spite of the need for judgment, God will still do a wonderful thing. He will make his people once again right with him. And doesn't that remind us of God's mercy, his long suffering, and most of all, his will to do what is right? God will do what is right. When it is judgment, it is righteous judgment. When it is restoration, it is beautiful and long-suffering restoration. And doesn't this, for us, sound notes of the gospel? When we're reminded about these truths about God, we're reminded that, that it is His mercy that drew us to Him, that, that, that sent Christ as the provision for our sin, you see, we all deserve to be under the wrath of God. And when we, when we consider the holiness of God and the just judgment of God, we should fear. Because you and I this morning are worthy of that judgment. Oh, but Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came from heaven to earth. He lived a perfect life that you and I cannot live. And then He suffered do you realize that he suffered the punishment that you and I deserve when he hung on that cross? In fact, he suffered the punishment of death itself, the ultimate consequence of sin. But it didn't conquer him. He rose again the third day. And when he rose again, he signified the fact that he has the authority to offer forgiveness of sin to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. Ah, there it is, repentance. And that is what the prophet calls his people to. And if we are to be God's people in right relationship with God, it is not because, pat ourselves on the back, we're better than all the surrounding people. It is only through the door of faith and repentance 
And so I would ask you this morning, has there ever been a day when you have repented of your sin, abandoned your own way, and depended on Jesus Christ alone for salvation? If you've never done that, whether you're here this morning or whether you're watching us online, we would love the opportunity to answer any questions about how you can know that your sins are forgiven and you're in right relationship with God. And then as we said earlier, how do we live that out? It is through ongoing repentance. The reality that we are hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. That we have no claim of worthiness that we can bring before a holy, righteous God who judges sin. No, no where we find our hope is on, in throwing ourselves on His mercy. Only because of the provision of Jesus Christ can we know this assurance this morning. And so there is hope. It seems like every one of the prophets are kind of like that, right? Oh, it's dark, it's bad, it's judgment. Oh, but God's still up to something. And in the last part of Zephaniah, from about chapter 3, verse 6, verse 8, it's actually a beautiful story of what God is intending to do. Few, if any, of Zephaniah's generation would live to see the restoration from Babylon. None of them would live to see the transformation from the nation that was in rebellion against him to a spiritual nation that is described here. But in the resurrection, all of God's people will see the fulfillment of his promises, the promises that God repeats here. God always does what is right. Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for your mercy. And Lord, we are remiss because we often fail to think about the judgment that we deserve and the grace that is found in Christ. Help us even this morning as we think about your people. We pray that you would help us to reflect on your goodness, your justice, but your mercy and grace as well. I'm going to give you a moment to remain